Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast where we're reading through Patrick O'Brien's Jack Aubrey and Stephen Matron novels. We're continuing this week with Fortune of War. Ian, can you bring us up to date with where we are here? Thank you, Mike. I'd love to do that. Jack and Stephen and now also Diana were together in Boston Stephen on parole, Jack still as a prisoner of war, nominally recovering from his injuries. Stephen and Diana had, at least to some extent, got back together to the point where Stephen proposed to Diana. Huh. <laughs> that doesn't mean that they're completely out of the woods, though, because they're still in Boston with French spies and with a potentially antagonistic Mr. Johnson around them and with Jack still under investigation for his role as a sailor and maybe also, wrongly, his role as a spy. So, Stephen's no longer in love with Diana. He's offered to free her from Johnson and the whole situation in America by marrying her and taking her back when Jack and Stephen themselves are exchanged. In the meantime, Johnson, in his role as an intelligence chief within the US organization, is trying to recruit Stephen, believes he has recruited Stephen as an agent. Jack's been wistfully looking out the window at ships, pondering when he might next get to see. England and the British Navy are on a losing streak. There's been a series of defeats in single ship actions, defeats of British ships by American ships in the War of 1812. A shutout on the high seas, as you might say. We've got to figure out how are Jack and Stephen going to find their way out of Boston? How are Stephen and Diana going to find themselves free, if at all, What's going to happen with Johnson? And what about those two French agents who are in town as well? What's going to happen? Are the British Navy going to be able to turn the tables finally on the American Navy? And how close to that action can Jack Aubrey get? We'll find out. Nice. So, Mike, it's, it seems like Diana thinks maybe her, her troubles are over with Stephen's offer of marriage, but it's not quite as simple as that, is it? No, no. I mean, even Diana herself, right as she's kind of breathing that sigh of relief and is so happy that Stephen is kind of coming through for her, they hear Johnson's voice in the hallway. And Diana all of a sudden remembers, wait a minute, Johnson thinks that Aubrey is the guy who sent that poison intelligence letter and is never going to allow Jack to be exchanged back. And here's Johnson coming back on them now. And Johnson ominously is calling out in French in the hallway as he comes back into the room. Um, you know, he waltzes back in. Diana still has her diamonds out for, I, I, I can't even remember what the uh, occasion was, but Johnson's very upset about that and wants her to put those diamonds away. Meanwhile, grabs Stephen, takes him aside to start talking about the talk that Johnson has just had with Jack ostensibly about exchanging Jack. But uh, I I think we have our doubts about that. I think we do. I think that it's pretty clear that Johnson's manipulating the situation at least a little bit. Yeah. I I want to pick up on the language thing here for a second, Mike, because Johnson's calling out in French. Um, We've got quite a lot of French vocabulary, especially in the latter half of the book. The necklace of diamonds is not a necklace. It's a riviere. The marriage that Stephen offers Diana isn't a marriage of convenience. It's a mariage blanc. And there are a number of other occasions later on where we get French vocabulary dropping in. And we're also going to hear Stephen speaking French as well. And I don't know, that O'Brien subconsciously enjoying the fact that we're getting close to contact with the world of the French and that that's seeping through into his writing or maybe he's showing off his French language chops. I don't know. <laughs> and and you kind of think that, you know, we're enough books into the canon now that America's selling pretty big for O'Brien. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how much French he, he uh, expects us to know. Luckily, we've got things like the gun room, and the lexicons that uh, can be helpful. Plus, you've got street names in New Orleans, right? So that's enough. Well, there you go. There you go. Right. A little bit of Creole goes a long way in this world of uh, Patrick O'Brien's French. Stephen and Johnson are having this conversation about the situation in Europe. I think Johnson's sounding Stephen out about whether they can together work for peace in Europe. Um, He mentions trailing Stephen's knowledge of Catalan and Ireland. And Stephen's doing a pretty nice job, I think, of distancing himself from a potential identity as a spy, saying that the advice of a plain naval surgeon would be of little use. But it's really difficult. You can feel it just below the surface. 
that Stephen's on the verge of being revealed in his character as an agent in any of this conversation with Johnson. And he's got this going on in his head. He's also got his debate about his internal debate about his relationship with Diana. He's really going to have to keep his wits about him in the next few chapters, I think, to stay alive and to stay in control of the situation. You know, you almost feel Johnson kind of, you know, sort of spraying this number of targets for Stephen to pick up on. What what am I going to get? What little thread can I get Stephen to bite on to give me just a little bit and that kind of recruiting agents technique of, you know, once you've told me a little bit, then, you know, you've kind of worked with me and now you've got to tell me more and tell me more and tell me more. So that slippery slope, Stephen having none of it. And and it almost looks like Johnson then says, well, let me take another tact here. I haven't been able to seduce you in. I haven't been able to drip, 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 drip that. And um, uh, these Frenchmen come in, Dubray and Ponte Canet, and Dubray, as we'll recall, was yeah. the top French agent that um, Stephen actually, part of the poison pill, he thought would end up doing Dubray in, in France. But now Dubray's here in the U.S. Stephen's thinking, you know, I don't think this guy knows me except by description, even though Stephen has certainly spied on him several times. And there's no words passed at the time. The Frenchmen walk in, they take an envelope from Johnson, they walk out. But then Johnson kind of plays the next card. I think he he starts to double down on the stakes here with Stephen. <laughs> yes. He points out that one of the French agents had, had taken a double agent on the Canadian border and describes what they did to him and that he said he wouldn't, he wouldn't attempt it even though Stephen was a medical man. I think he's trailing the idea of torture and trailing the idea of these French agents as really ruthless, probably in an effort to scare some kind of moving position or some kind of concession out of Stephen. Exactly. And he's saying, okay, it's okay for now. Let us meet tomorrow. There are formalities. I'm kind of getting the impression that, you know, that's a nice neck you have, Dr. Maturin. Shame of anything would have happened to it. Right, right. And, and you know, and I'm working on Aubrey's exchange and, gee, you know, I hate for him to be worried about it as sick as he is right now, but but you just sleep on it. You know, kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, your friend is not going to get exchanged. You're going to get cut up into small pieces and sleep with the fishes, Stephen. So you just think about what you want to do and come back and see me. And I think Johnson is really pushing Stephen as hard as he can go right now. And it looks like, you know, time is kind of at the essence here. The Frenchmen are circling around, uh, kind of wonder what Stephen going to do. Indeed. And Stephen goes back to see Jack and he realizes it's getting even closer to him being revealed because it turns out that, that Jack has inadvertently bragged about Stephen's linguistic capabilities, how he can pass for French, how he speaks all these languages. And he says, I'm obliged to you for your good opinion but you might avoid applauding what you are so kind as to call my parts to strangers. It might lead them to think that I was intelligent, even over-intelligent. <laughs> At this stage, I'm pretty sure that Jack and certainly other members of the crew like Bondon know more or less what it is that Stephen does, but he still speaks about it very indirectly with Jack. And he's thinking, well, one more step, one more false move one more inadvertent revelation by Jack or Diana or who knows, Heropath or somebody else, and it might all come crashing down. Yeah, absolutely. Jack, on the other hand, hears about this and he's anxious to tell Stephen what's happened with him. And we get kind of a real turnabout here. Jack starts telling Stephen about meeting Captain Lawrence, this this younger guy, much less reserved than Bainbridge, the you know the, the captain who was kind enough to bring them in. He talks about seeing the Shannon, the English uh, man of war who keeps looking in at the Chesapeake there, you know, and and that last frigate left to go out of the harbor, being blockaded in there, and he knows how badly the Shannon wants the Chesapeake to come out because Jack's cousin, Philip Brook, a cousin that he actually grew up with, mm. is the captain there. And so Jack tells Stephen all about that. And he, he makes this interesting distinction that, uh, you know, whereas Jack grew up at sea and kind of earned his command, Philip went much later in life to the academy at Portsmouth. And, and Jack has sort of some amusing differences between the captains who learned at sea and the captains who learned at Portsmouth at the academy. <laughs> but he does, he really feels for Philip Brooke, his cousin, the captain of the Shannon. You know, he says that he's never had a chance of distinguishing himself in her, in the Shannon, that is, never met a Frenchman who was his match 
which was a pity because there was never a man who longed for glory more or who worked harder for it. So Jack's got a lot of sympathy for and a certain amount of parallels, I think, between Jack's approach to leading and captaining a man of war and Brooks captaining a man of war. Jack, I think, is really wishing that he could be out there helping, maybe also a little bit regretting the fact that it's going to be Philip Brooke, his cousin and his close contemporary rather than he, Jack Aubrey, who might get the chance to set matters to right with the Chesapeake. But we'll see about that. That's right. I don't think Jack particularly likes Johnson either. I think he's got a bad feeling about Johnson. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. And, you know, Stephen tries to um, bring Jack up to date with the way he sees things. And, you know, he's telling Jack that the situation could get really ugly. You know, and Jack is asking, really, they can't do anything to you in the U.S. This is not Spain. I think, you know, hearkening back to Menorca and the way the French treated yeah. Stephen there. Yes, exactly. um, and, and I think yeah. Stephen now is moving very, even even more quickly into his intelligence agent mode and is saying, basically, here, here's the note for Mr. Harapar Sr. Give it to him. Uh, and as soon as he's read it, I want him to throw it into the fire. And, uh, you know, basically saying, don't meet with us again, bring us a pair of pocket pistols. And then Stephen shows Jack that he's armed himself with this catling, <laughs> this heavy-handled, short, double-sided blade that he uses for amputations. <laughs> and so he wants Jack to have the pistols. He's got his little surgical instrument. And and I think, uh, you know, we're, we're starting to get the feeling that this is dire and maybe there's a little action looming here. Yeah, they're both tooling up and they're both scouting the lay of the land and scouting where their alliances might lie and who they can rely on. Yes. Uh, Stephen uh, sees Louisa Wogan in the street and it says a queer look of concern, fright and enmity. And then she ducked into a shop. Something out there on the street is saying that Stephen Maturin is in danger. And then Mike, we have this episode where all of a sudden the, the quiet streets of Boston burst into action like a Jack Ryan movie. Carriage rolls up beside Stephen. Ponte Canet, the French agent, and some men jump out. Stephen screams and hollers. He's rolling around on the ground. He shouts, stop, thief. And then officers and a crowd come to his aid. Meanwhile, the French take off down the street in their carriage. And it's very smart of Stephen. He's decided that he's going to make as much fuss and noise as he can. And he's literally on his way into his next meeting with with Johnson, presumably to give his answer about whether he's prepared to be recruited by Johnson. Right. And I don't think he has to pretend too hard, actually, to still be in this state of high outrage and says, this is monstrous. The French agents have tried to take me in the street and what are you going to do about it? And rah, 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 rah. He's, he's not happy. But actually that, that righteous anger of his is helping him position this conversation with Johnson in the right way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Johnson, nevertheless, continues to press him on at least providing a little minimal consultation on Catalan affairs. So Stephen, Stephen's getting a pretty good idea here, the way they have been able to zero in on what his great interests are, that they've got some better intelligence on him. And then Stephen still, as you say, so incensed that Johnson, Johnson sends Stephen home with Michael Harapath. And Johnson says, look, I'm going to be out of town for a couple of days. Give me your answer when I return. We're still not in immediate mortal danger, but we've just doubled up all of this threat that's lurking just on the margins of the scene. Johnson still is holding this threat over Stephen, really, although he's pretending to be outraged at the behavior of the French. What's going to happen next? So he he goes and talks to Jack. Um, By the way, I love the fact that it's Jack (laughs) who prepares the tear in Stephen's coat. (laughs) A little, little throwback to the odd couple. Exactly like the old couple. Although, although, let's do a little bit of continuity checking here, my man O'Brien. Jack's using what he calls a hussif. He says, pass me my hussif. Hussif is short for housewife, which is a little sort of rolled up fabric cloth thing that people and especially sailors would use to carry around their personal little set of gadgets and haberdashery and needle and thread and stuff. And Jack's been in an open boat and taken prisoner right <laughs> and brought ashore and 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 treated for his wound and, and he I, I find it hard to believe that he's still got a little rolled up embroidery set i mean he's not in a marriott hotel he can't reach out and grab the one from the nightstand he must have brought, well <laughs> in a little cardboard packet he must have brought this with him if he's got it 
And I have a feeling that when La Flèche was on fire and he didn't have time to reach for his, his fiddle, I'm pretty sure <laughs> he didn't have time to reach for his haberdashery kit either. But never mind. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, Marriott Hotel. Other hotel chains are available, I should say. We're not sponsored. Right, right. <laughs> No, but if anybody wants to drop us a line, we'll make space. You know? Right, right, right. You know, you got an executive platinum over here who, who loves. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so, well, we we hear the hotel business is great these days. Surely they can spare some sponsorship cash for a podcast. We'll see. <laughs> there you go. Gosh. Well, Stephen tells Jack, "I believe the French have smoked me." <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> and so. And he reminds Jack that, you know, Stephen has always done all the harm he could possibly do to the French whenever he could do it. And he knows, and he tells Jack, you know, they would kill me for it if ever they can. So uh, he also tells Jack that he thinks that Johnson could protect him. You know, the, the caveat being as long as Johnson believes that Stephen's working for Johnson. He brings Jack up to speed about Diana's problems with Johnson you know, and, and the kind of guy that Johnson is. And he tells Jack that he has proposed that Diana marry him to get back to England where her loyalties lie. So all the cards are kind of getting on the table here. It was very funny to read uh, in the text. It says, Jack thought it better to make no remark on Stephen's <laughs> offer of marriage, even though his consternation was plain enough to a perceptive eye. <laughs> That's right. Great, so, great <laughs> point. That's right. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Lord only knows what Sophie so, would have said, right? Absolutely. He's like, okay, you know, this stuff really can't stand the daylight. So I'm going to go see the English agent for prisoners of war. I'm going to see as many officials and foreign councils and Federalist newspaper people as I can, kind of make them all aware so that the French covert operations, you know, would come to light if they did anything openly like they tried to do that day. Right. So trying to keep them from threatening him, trying to get the false claims against Jack dropped. So he's, he's sure that Johnson will at least keep his promise to keep the French in check until Monday. So they've bought themselves some time, right? Hopefully so, exactly. That's what we're counting on here. And Jack listening to all this is in the meantime, mending Stephen's coat <laughs> and then handing it back to him. And he, and he says, and, and I kind of had this feeling too, that, you know, we're, we've been on shore for a very long time. And Jack looks at Stephen and says, dear Lord above, how I do wish I could set you clear of all this dirty, ugly, underhanded mess. How I long for the open sea. A sentiment that, I think both of them have expressed <laughs> for each other in the, on a number of occasions. Right. You know, Jack ashore is not the same as Jack at sea, and they're both really wishing we could get out of this land-bound, non-naval mess. And I think we get another signal that Stephen feels really up against it because he goes to mass. Yeah. It's not completely unknown for Stephen to go to mass, but it's very rarely talked about and narrated directly in the action. And he goes to mass with the Irish nurses, uh, he, he has an, a motive, of course, which is he, he wants Father Costello to agree to perform the marriage between him and Diana. I don't think he's actually squared away with Diana as to whether she'd be okay getting married according to the Catholic rite. But there's something about Stephen going for uh, a bit of solace, a bit of refuge in his, you know, in his old faith. And guess what? The weather outside is foggy. Right, deep foggy. Right. And we've we've talked about this before. It's a signal of. The, the characters being a bit isolated, a bit all at sea, uh, wandering a little bit at a loss. And Stephen's hoping to reach Mr. Andrews. He knows where he lives. It's just around the corner from Franchon's hotel. Right. And he realizes he's walked past the hotel. He gets up close to the house, which is still dark. And we're back in spy movie mode. The Frenchmen pull up in a coach and they pour out of the coach. And he finds himself in this really horrible situation of being in the midst of a family who are on their way to church themselves. And the French fire at Stephen hitting a child. The child's only wounded, but, you know, harm to a child is a, is a theme of horror and a disaster in, in all of Patrick O'Brien's books. So Stephen's on the run. He hides in a pigsty. He outwits them. He manages to get them to go back to their coat. He pulls off this really audacious Jason Bourne move of jumping in the French people's own coach, pulling his pistol and forcing the lone driver to whisk him away. He says, Fouet! As he pushes the pistol into the guy's neck. And Fouet means crack the whip. Right. It means go. 
and he keeps on saying, Fuet, Fuet. They go through Ponte Canet. Some of his men try to take up a pursuit. The coachman turns rapidly and pushes Stephen off to the street, and Stephen hits his head on the curb. Another Jason Bourne, James Bond moment. Right. And he spots a workman's rope. <laughs> and of all of the people who are qualified to just reach out and grab a rope and shinny up it, yeah. <laughs> Stephen's not one. So he has to get a little bit of action hero on here, climb up this rope hand over hand, and he's on the balcony. It says, hand over hand, he went up it, not indeed like a topman laying aloft, but like a lithe, dangerous, wild beast, trying one last ruse before turning on its equally dangerous and more numerous enemies. The balcony railing, and he was over, crouching with his breath coming in enormous gasps, his eyes unable to focus clear. Bit of first-person action there for Stephen. Yeah, and and we're kind of summarizing this here, but reading it, I remember this is an incredible nail biter. And Stephen has got stitches of pain, like yeah. you said. He you know jumps in this pigsty. He's you know barely outrunning these guys. They're losing each other in the fog, and it really is an action thriller. The Jason Bourne analogy is brilliant. It's so true. Yeah, and and. We've had action before, but not immediate first person turning the street corner. Yes. <laughs> action. Yeah. And it really, you know, it's it's good. I think it would have read really false if it had been, you know, first chapter. It would probably have read really false if it was Jack Aubrey as well. But because right. it's Stephen and he's trying to do his resourceful, find his way out of a situation. And we know that he's got all this danger. We've we've built up and built up and built up all of these little signals of the immediate danger that he's in. And he's finally got to take immediate physical action to get himself out of it so i think right. you know o'brien's earned it but it's completely different to anything that's been written about in the immediate past in the canon absolutely absolutely so stephen has done his action here i think he's climbed up he's on the balcony and if this hadn't been prepared so well it would look like a crazy cliche you know banging on the doors of hotel windows trying to get let in and he finds his way into diana's room and now it goes from action hero moment almost to French farce as he says, I need to hide. And she hides him under the bedclothes. Right, 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 right. He knew where her window was. He's going. He knows the Frenchmen are right behind him there. And he's knocking in the door and, uh, you know, he's saying, quick, for the love of God. Diana's saying, who is it? And she says, don't be a fool, woman. <laughs> Cries out a low but sharp. And, and they're saying, Quick, quick, dear Christ at all. And this, I'm sure to Diana, like we said, this is not the usual Stephen. This is the animal with the yep. supercharged rush of adrenaline, you know, completely cornered here. And this is like <laughs> brand new, right? Jumps in the window, get in on top of me. You know, he's hollering at Diana as he climbs down to the bottom of the sheets in her bed, ruffle the clothes up. <laughs> and so... And then as as they're doing that, we hear the Frenchman outside running down the balcony. No, no, no. That is Johnson's woman's room. Try the next two here. So, yeah, yeah I, I was like, oh, my gosh. Not only was the action scene unreal, but this interaction between Diana and Stephen, a bit different. Yeah, it is. And we get the, the hotel servant knocks on the door. They're looking for a fugitive. Is there anyone in here? And Diana says, no, no, no. You know, the Jedi mind trick. You know, these are not the these are not the Irish spies you're looking for. <laughs> I'm sure Brian Wilson would have been all over the uh, tradecraft here. <laughs> exactly right. But I love that it's been really, really pacey up to this point. The action has moved really quickly. Stephen's physically been moving quickly. And it's Diana who takes the pace out. She looked at him affectionately, hesitated, <laughs> poured herself a finger of bourbon, right. and said, of all the bedrooms in all the towns in all the world. No, she didn't say that. She said, well, <laughs> She said, what are you at, Maturin? Flying from an angry husband. It's not like you to bound from one bed to another. But after all, you're just a man. And then she calls him out for referring to her as a fool. But she's really nicely taking the sting out of this and mocking him a little bit. And I'm sure she doesn't quite get just how much danger he's in. But that's the thing he's always admired about her. She's got this poise and this particular kind of courage and somebody at some point in this book right. describes her as having a ram you damn you air. And that's really good. I just got this vision of her lying there pouring a finger of bourbon and going, 
So what's all the problem here? I, I do love that. And and she, of course, has no idea what all's going on around here. So he brings her up to speed, right? He says, I was escaping from Ponte Canet. They mean to kill me. And that's what I was speaking to Johnson about. And now they've made their, their next more determined attempt. And I think, Mike, she 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 gets with the program pretty quickly. Right, he says, exactly. okay, I need you to go. I need you to go see Andrews. I need you to go find Herapath. Yeah. I need you to go see. And she's dressed and up and organized and she's out of the door. So she's she can match him, I think, for resourcefulness and purposefulness. But she just wants to do it in her own way. Yeah, absolutely. And as he's admiring Diana's guts, you know, as she's left the door, he's kind of checking on his own here and finds a few cracked ribs he doesn't think a concussion, but definitely an addled mind and expectation of nausea. And uh, he has, you know, before Diana left, he had asked her to point him towards Johnson's room. So he's now headed that way and is going through Johnson's paper. And he finds an intercepted note from Diana to himself, to Matron, uh, confirming that she'll marry him, saying that, yeah. In quotes, that gross fellow, meaning Johnson, has taken his trollop off for the weekend and invites Stephen to spend Sunday with her. And now reading this, I think Stephen is really chilled knowing both their lives are in danger. All bets are off. And he realizes why the French agents have been turned loose. This is another one of those moments when we, we learn something almost secondhand and it completely shifts the ground under everyone's feet, there's no doubt anymore yes. <laughs> about the mortal danger that Stephen's in. He's really reading this paper and he realizes the fact that, A, Diana wrote it and she intends to marry Stephen this time. That's a big revelation. And it's, the, the revelation is that it's in Johnson's possession. Right. He's read it and hasn't passed it on, meaning that Johnson's completely across everything. All of Johnson's pretense of bonhomie and friendship and recruitment and we're going to collaborate is revealed for what it is for that same pretense. And now Stephen knows he's rapidly running out of places in Boston where he can stay safe. Oh, very definitely. Very definitely. And right in the midst of this realization, he hears somebody unlocking the door into Johnson's <gasps> room where Stephen's sitting at the desk. Stephen grabs his heavy paperwork, ducks behind the door, and peeking out, he sees it's Ponte yeah. Canet who's spying on Johnson. But luckily, Ponte Canet's done this before. He knows where a lot of the key stuff is. He pulls out a strong box, you know, this kind of safe in which Johnson keeps his most important and confidential stuff, and unlocks it with a skeleton key. Stephen sneaks out behind him, knocks him down with a paperweight, and then cuts his throat with his surgical instrument, mm. drags his body into Johnson's hip bath, you know, stuffs towels around him to keep the blood soaking out on the floor and, and you know, dripping down to the next floor below, and then searches Ponte Canet's body, which is, you know, all of this is kind of, once again, we're yeah. seeing Stephen in these different lights. And and I loved how O'Brien puts in here. I mean, so Stephen is now like, boom, first class trade calf, absolute kind of action hero, something like that. But then Stephen stops in, in the midst of this search he comes across Ponte Canet's watch. It's just like mm -hmm. the one that the French had stolen from Stephen, and Stephen puckers it and takes it with him. And it's great, isn't it? Even though he was pounding with adrenaline just a few moments ago, and he's in danger, and we think he's got a cracked skull and some broken ribs, he's super calm. Right. He's super composed. He knows just how to set this up so that he doesn't do any more damage than he needs to with the killing of the of the agent and the, the towels. He if he was any more composed, he might have gone down the Breaking Bad route and filled the bath with hydrofluoric acid and dissolved the body. It's, and, it, <laughs> oh and I'm thinking of that because this is unusually gruesome stuff for O'Brien, right? We've said before, he doesn't, right. he doesn't normally show us death and he doesn't do that much first-person action, but we've got both of those in this scene. And it really makes it a, a high point of excitement in, in, in the story. We're really meant to be shocked by this, I think, and it is really shocking stuff. Absolutely. Well, the strongbox, Stephen turns from Ponte Canet's body back to this strongbox contents now and realizes that this is an incredible intelligence coup because Johnson, who's you know kind of new at this intelligence business, as are the Americas, all of his stuff in the strongbox is not in code. Yeah. It's just in plain English. Yep. And so Stephen has got this all this great intelligence work 
And as he's trying to read it, these fireworks are going off in the street, um, probably pounding his head, which is already hurting. And he doesn't hear the door open again. And now we've got Ponte Canet being followed by Dubray, the other, you know, this merciless French agent that yeah. Johnson was threatening Stephen with. And, you know, the a- agent is basically almost on him when Stephen realizes he's there. And now Stephen's got to, you know, react. He, he can't be quite as methodical as he was with Ponte Canet. Mm-mm. He whips around, he takes his pocket pistol, which Herapath had been so kind to provide a pair, you know, one for Stephen, one for Jack. And he shoots. Debray throws his body in the hip bath, but he's waiting, waiting, waiting to hear everybody in this French hotel come running. But with the fireworks going on outside and everything, he realizes that there's nobody coming. There's always a firework display just when you need one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a great, you know, we can see the movie director in the background here, Gord saying, wait, 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 I think we're going to have to have a distraction. <laughs> Jason Bourne would have had a silencer, but Stephen Maturing gets fireworks. <laughs> Oh, that's right. That's right. It read to me like we have a little bit of that Stephen that we know so well coming back because he's he's dragging Dubray into the hip bath. He realizes that he's, he's pretty sickened by all this killing, you know, the killing that the French have done, the killing yeah. that he's done. And as he, he throws him into the hip bath, he doesn't even search the body. And he's finding that it's really hard to think about what to do next. Yeah. His mind is starting to fail him a little bit here. And what's he got to help him? He's got Diana out there trying to activate the next round of his escape plan. And maybe, just maybe, Jack and a couple of his allies might be around to help him out of this. But for now, it must be a very strange sensation to be holed up in these hotel suites with the two agents that he's done away with and a bunch of confidential papers. Right. You know, and no way, you know, no way out at this point, perhaps, yeah. you know, that, that we know of. He's surrounded by Frenchmen, all expecting probably these other French, you know, intelligence agents to return. Yeah. So Diane's back with Herapath, and Stephen learns that there's not very many people standing behind Diana. She doesn't have any other friends in America. Yeah. And now he gets to reveal to her that he knows about the letter that she wrote and that it never reached him. And, you know, he sends Michael off to take this note to Jack, quickly outlining the situation. And then he kind of brings Diana up to speed on all this stuff. And Diana is still showing really deep attachment, really deep gratitude for and longing for Stephen. I I don't care what happens, she says. I don't care. I don't mind as long as you are there. Yeah, that was... Uh, magic moment. She says that from time to time, but she doesn't often say it twice in the same <laughs> twice in the same chapter. <laughs> no, no, and and you kind of I don't know. I anyways got a little bit of the feeling like she really means it. At least at this moment in time, she really means it. Yeah. And you know, all of a sudden, I've got a little bit more of a warm glowing in my heart for Diana. Definitely, and I think we're as we've said before. I think we're on the way to getting some more empathy for Diana, and that's a. That's a good thing for the sake of the whole of the rest of the story. And I think for the sake of Stephen as well. And she's prepared to be resourceful and she's prepared to be helpful. And she's really got some, there's an unconditional element to her caring for him. It's time for us to take a short break. So stay with us and we will be right back. Yes, well, I never mind taking a short break, so long as when I get back, you are there, Ian. Oh, Mike, you say the sweetest things, and yet the hardest to believe. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we're moving into action here, right? It's all starting to come together. The players are all in place. Jack's at the point of breaking out into decisive sea captain mode, and Stephen and Diana are together, at least... Diane's pretty sure she's going to rely on Stephen. Right, that's right. Stephen's pretty sure sure it's a good idea, pretty sure it's a good idea to offer to marry Diana and the Herapaths are in the background ready to help them out. Right, and I think when Jack receives Stephen's note from Michael Herapath, that really moves him into action. He can start firing away the questions to get the lay of the land here, Um, you know, learn more about the hotel where... Diana and Stephen are hiding and decides to rally, as you've been pointing out, the allies here. Ask Michael to take him to George, to Mr. Harapath Sr.'s house. And Jack has got a plan already formed in his mind. He talks to Mr. Harapath, 
very plainly and wants to use a hiding place on one of his ships. He just assumes, having been on board some of these American merchantmen, knows that they have a place where they hide sailors to avoid the English press and thinks, what a great place to stick Stephen and Diana and me until I can figure out how to get us out of here, if we can get Stephen and Diana out of the hotel. Yeah. And I, I love the fact that Jack has suddenly come to life. He's like the, the the Jack that we met getting the crew of the Polycrest ready to go for the cutting out expedition at Cholier back in post-captain. He's the same Jack that was sharing his plan with the East India Company captains ready to fight uh, Linois. Right. He's fast and he's decisive. He's also a great contrast, I think, Mike. He's a contrast between yeah, himself resourceful and purposeful and cutting through. And we, we're starting to see signs in contrast with George Herapath, Herapath Sr., is, I don't know how to put it politely in a, in a, in a woke way. He's being a bit of an old woman here. <laughs> he kind of, he, he paces around trying to answer a simple question. And, and Jack politely says, do you wish to consider on it for a while? And he's a little bit slow and a bit of a fuss pot. Even his son, Michael Herapath is a bit slow drawing up the plan of the hotel. And we get this really clear idea of Jack is fizzing with energy and ready to go. And the others are just a little bit anxious and just a little bit overthinking it. Right, right. Definitely overthinking it because Herapath comes up, Herapath Sr. comes up, he, he now gets very, you know, more and more excited. He's got this hugely elaborate plan. He's got it based on Shakespearean plays and characters. He wants to smuggle Stephen out of the hotel in a huge laundry basket, wants to take Jack, dress him up as a slave, cut off his hair, blacken them, can't decide whether to use burnt cork or walnut juice. Um, and, and now he's ready. Now he's ready to get this huge elaborate thing into action. And Jack is like, look, I just want to get here and survey the terrain. And now Herapath is the one that says, no, 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 we got we to be decisive. We got to move right now. There's just this little sense, isn't there, that on land there is still enough people kind of clawing at Jack's coattails right. to possibly, possibly get in the way of his, his well-woven plan. Jack's been winding himself up over the last chapters to be physically and mentally and emotionally ready to go into action. And now his allies are just starting to look like they're going to fail him. What is? He's, you know, Jack's kind of looking at Herapath. Now he sees, you know, it looked like he couldn't make a decision. Now he's so overwhelmed yep. with zeal. But Jack has seen this before. He's seen this before in people mm -hmm. under his command, in people he's gone into action with, how, you know, some people are, you know, they, they're so excited. But then when the thing gets a little bloody or the really the going gets tough, that fades away. And and, and Jack is a little worried about that. Also, Herapath wants to move quickly. And Jack's thinking, you know what? The later, the better. We want few people around. We'd like to move yeah. under the cover of darkness. And it's, yeah. you know, it's interesting, this contrast between the two. Yeah. And I think we're seeing as well a contrast between fathers and sons here. Yeah. And O'Brien, I think, has got this pattern in this novel and in other novels as well of the older men, fathers or father figures, get distractible and indecisive and even a bit emotionally kind of incontinent as they get older. <laughs> and that's a gloomy prognosis, right? For for Jack, who is only a few years into his career as fatherhood, that's a, that's a gloomy prognosis for Lucky right. Jack, whose stock in trade is his ability to be focused and decisive. We get this really acute contrast, I think, between wise Jack and naive, fussing, indecisive heropaths. I think we even get it, Mike, when they go to the Arcturus and that the Herapaths, especially George Herapath, are really pleased to show this, they think, cunningly concealed hidey hole in the breadroom of the Arcturus. Right. And Jack's going, yeah, I've seen this a dozen times before. It's the first place we look, right? <laughs> oh. yeah. So anyhow, they, they set off. So they've been to the Arcturus. They've scoped out the breadroom. Jack has got the lie of the land. As he said, he's secured his retreat. And now Herapath's driving the coach. Very indifferent choice, I feel, as a coach driver. Right. Herapath Sr. is driving the coach, and they're off to the hotel. And Herapath's not great as a coachman. He slows them down. He causes his traffic upset. He damages the traces. It was getting later and later and later, and Herapath has gone from being this sort of naive and talky enthusiast to being the sullen and sometimes critical 
kind of commentator on the whole thing. And it just reminds me of taking my kids on a long car journey, you know, <laughs> at the beginning, they're excited. But by the end, they're going, give me back my candy. Right, right. Well, as we were saying sort of a minute ago, O'Brien writes that Jack kind of recognizes his behavior as similar to sailors, as O'Brien writes, during the long pull towards a hostile shore before the batteries opened fire. So it gets a little ominous here. Yeah. So we're, we're feeling the action coming. And all the way through, we're feeling that there's just this possibility that between them, <laughs> Herapath Senior and maybe the horses, because horses have a way of playing a role in these dramas, right. Herapath Senior and the horses between them might yet undo all of this great preparation. Yeah, yeah. And and sure enough, it's it's late. They're parked out front. There are a bunch of French officers still drinking in the bar. You know, Michael runs up to heckle on Stephen and Diana. Jack is trying to get the lay of the land still of the hotel here. And, uh, you know, Harapath is up there fussing and fuming on top of the coach, holding the horses. He complains about it's late, it's cold, he might be recognized. And Jack instead is just, you know, his focus is concentrated. His heart is beating like, as you kind of say, it's his beat to quarter state. Here he is. He's ready to go yeah. here. O'Brien gives us it directly, I think, in the text. It says, his mind was running fast and clear. He had that fine, contained feeling of going into action, heart beating high, but well in hand, and the freshening breeze on his cheek. <laughs> you, you, know, you can almost see Jack Aubrey there fizzing with energy, ready to go. And obviously, at the risk of being undercut, by the old fuss pot, Mr. Herapath. Yeah, yeah. I can I can almost uh you know start to smell the salt in the air, feel the <laughs> feel the waves underneath the bow here. If we can get rid of this fussy Mr. Herapath, as Jack is checking the hotel entrance, sees that the loud drunken officers are clearing off and going home, which leaves the path clear for them. Upstairs, the, the old Diana hasn't completely gone because <laughs> she asks, what about the diamonds that Johnson had given her? And she says, you said my diamonds were in Johnson's desk. Is it open? And it's very genteel of Stephen to warn her that if she goes looking for her diamonds, she's going to see two brutally killed <laughs> French officers <laughs> in the bathroom in the hip bath. But first inspection, she's got her tail up. She said, but I, I don't give a damn those diamonds are mine. I have earned them. And then we get one of these shifting moments. She comes back carrying the jewel case and she goes on and explains herself. Ooh. So having earlier said, earlier said, I have earned them. She says, I mean, by receiving his horrible political guests and translating. And from Stephen's point of view, we get this idea that Diana, the Diana he had known could never have said the first words about earning them. Or, having by some impossibility said them, she would never, ever have produced the explanation. Ouch. Ouch. And, you know, earlier on I was saying, I was fishing for moments. Where are the moments when you discover what it is about Diana that's changed and what's the reason for Stephen's changed feelings towards her? Yeah. And this being O'Brien, lots of those moments are a little bit out of place, or at least not in nice, ordered terms in the narrative. And this is the moment where we see that there's this big change in Diana. She's traditionally has a big ego, right? Diana, in a, in a good way, is one right. of those completely unflappable, lovingly, toweringly confident, self-assured people. Her ego was pretty much bulletproof. But to have stumbled over saying, I earned the diamonds, and then stumbled over saying, well, actually, what I meant when I said I earned them wasn't some some horrible world about my sexual morality, but about the things that I'd done to help Johnson out. This is her acknowledging that her ego is a bit fragile and that she feels like she has to explain herself. And she hasn't really got the presence of the composure anymore to laugh it off or just to do her usual thing. Yeah, yeah. It looks to me like, Mike, the, the, the old self has been kind of scrubbed away and replaced with someone who's not as sure of herself. And the idea of this being an explanation, like she being moved to explain her conduct, reminded me of the old saying, never explain, never apologize. I think this has been attributed to Winston Churchill, by the way, attributed to Winston Churchill because every British person think everything wise and snappy that was ever said was said by Winston Churchill, which is clearly not true. Uh, also attributed to Gertrude Stein, Agnes MacPhail, by the way, a Canadian author, I think, oh. uh, and Benjamin Jowett. Whoever whoever it was who said it, 
it's got this aspect of hubris to it. Never apologize, never explain means damn the world, don't give an account of yourself, just be yourself. And that always seemed to me to be quite a good encapsulation of Diana's character. But now that character is broken in some way and she feels like she has to explain herself. And she goes on to say that she too is seeing something new in Stephen. She's beginning to perceive his role as an intelligence agent and says, I didn't know you had anything to do with spying. And he denies it for now. He says, I know the army intelligence officer in Halifax and the papers may be useful to him. But I think, Mike, this is a moment where we're getting this new realization between Stephen and Diana. Yeah, very much so. I have to admit, it just hurts my heart just a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. And we're realizing this after he's gone ahead and made the offer of marriage and after she has said, more or less, yes, please. Right. That they're seeing each other anew. Oh, oh dear. Luckily, that never happens in real life. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, it's funny, the spotlight doesn't stay on Stephen and Diana for very long because the tempo of the story at this point is quite hot. And we know that down in the street are Jack and the Heropaths and time is a-wasting and we need to get to the Arcturus. Right. So, you know, these drunken officers, they come out on the street and they're starting to disperse. Everything's kind of set. But then we hear, and, and a little bit of this is Jack narrating later, this loud noise, and boom, the horses and Harapath and the coach shoot past Jack, shoot past the officer, and boom, leaves. Just yeah. when it would have been perfect time to pick them up and, and run them down to the ship, he's gone. But the officers go, and Harapath Jr., Michael, walks them through the back streets, takes Jack and Stephen and Diana grab some food for them, takes them to the ship. And Jack thanks him and confides with him once he's got Stephen and Diana down below decks that he's very worried about Harapath Sr. here and that, you know, it's soon going to be morning. And he's not really sure that if it comes to questioning that Harapath's going to hold up very well. He's thinking that he's got to accelerate his plan. Yeah, he's got to get out there. And of course, Stephen's on parole, so he's kind of allowed to be out on the streets. Jack hasn't been paroled. He's escaped. Right. So he needs to get out of there. By the way, Mike, I don't think we see or hear anything of George Herapath ever again in this story. I hope not. <laughs> um, I think we're going to hear a little bit about his son, but he's he's shot his bolt now. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he did great getting some aspects of the story together, and he was kind of on thin ice, I thought, with the slightly ridiculous blacking up story and the and the basket. But... He lost his nerve and he's gone. Yeah, yeah. It, it really, it, and kind of in retrospect, I mean, Jack has heard him give the shout to get the horses. So at first it's, it reads like there's a little confusion with the officers and being rowdy, but in fact, it was Harapath Sr. losing his nerve and you know running away right at the last moment here. And in true Patrick O'Brien narrative style, we find out about this afterwards in reported speech. Of course. So. <laughs> There's a really touching scene between Jack and Michael then, I thought. Yeah. Michael's helped to find a small boat to get Jack away or to get Jack and Diana and Stephen away. And Jack makes this very, what's the word? I think a very heartfelt offer to say, come with me, I'll rate you as a midshipman and you could ship as a surgeon's mate again. And that's digging deep. You know, Jack offers his own patronage and places on board his own ships actually only quite seldom in the story. And I think it's a real sign that he esteems Herapath quite highly. Yes. But Michael thanks him and reminds Jack that he's got ties to Boston and that actually in the current state of war, they are enemies. And Jack says, by God, so we are. I find it difficult to think of you as an enemy, Herapath. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Oh. Well, it's it's funny. Uh, you know, Jack's looking for a ship that or a boat, something that they can get away on. Herapath Sr. had said that there's one that he could, get for him, but Michael can only find him sort of this little fishing dinghy, not really cut out for much at all, um, but helps Jack rig it because of Jack's arm being hurt and then uh, is taking off. And you got Jack there standing on board, Stephen and Diana, presumably asleep or at least hiding and waiting downstairs. And Jack, it's kind of this great uh, point in the story that you hear O'Brien that Jack, again, is feeling his luck again. And he knows that he is going to tell just exactly when the tide is right. 
and he's thinking of England. He's hoping for his chance to come back with his new command, even the score up with the Americans. And, and it's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm getting this really warm, fuzzy feeling, you know, kind of that that drumbeat of, of moving ahead with Jack. But then he also has this thought of Diana and Diana being mm-hmm. unlucky, just as he knows that he's lucky again. He knows that Diana is unlucky and he's glad she's down there and not up on deck with him. And he's wondering, <laughs> you know, he's wondering about her and about Stephen and you know, maybe she's tormented him for so long, but maybe it's time they were together. So Jack lost in his thoughts out here, thank God, no longer on the land, but on a ship as the sun comes up on Boston and he gets Stephen and Diana up and prepares them to jump over the side into this old fishing boat tied to the side of the tourist there, uh, which <laughs> I, I thought was a great scene as well. He's very genteelly offering to help Diana down. And he says, mind your petticoats and jump. And she, with a flash of the old Diana ego, says, damn my petticoats. And he catches her on his good arm. And we get this very nice O'Brienish play on words. Oh, no one could call you a light woman, Diana, he said, setting her down among the bait pots and then blushed in the darkness. Right. And, and remember, we put a bookmark back in the beginning of Desolation Island when Sophie tells Jack how Diana is a light woman. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, she's therefore no good for Stephen. <laughs> so, you know, Jack is now saying, well, Diana, no one can call you a light woman. <laughs> so I, I guess I can only imagine, you know, O'Brien snickering at himself as he writes these lines, wondering, Who's going to smoke it? Who's going to remember back? Who's going to spot that? How far back can they remember? And the answer is, Mike, I think in this community, quite a long way back. Yes, very much so. You know, people who love these books, love these circumnavigations, and and are good friends in the gun room at Mm hmssurprise.org, who will, if we missed it, they'll catch it for us. I love that. So a few things are coming back into the settled order of things. Jack is in his native element again. He's in command of something, even if it's only a little dinghy. And he's at sea and the tide is rising. Right. To get really back into character, we've got to get Stephen and Jack teasing each other. And I want to dig into this scene where Jack says, boat your oars, like anybody (laughs) apart from him in the boat knows what the heck boat your oars means. Boat your oars. Clap onto the halyard. No, the halyard. God's death. Haul away. Catch a couple of turns around the kevil. The kevil. And you can almost see the, <laughs> you know, the, the music hall comedy that's playing out here as Stephen and Diana Stephen especially are trying to pull on the right rope and put their weight in the right place. And Jack is completely dumbfounded by just how little knowledge they've got. Jack dropped all, scrambled forward, caught two turns around the kevil and slid back to the tiller. The sail filled he brought the wind a little abaft the beam and the scow headed out to sea. <laughs> and the funny part now is when Stephen takes it up. Stephen says, you're cursed snappish tonight. Stephen's favorite criticism of everybody else is that they are like him. Like, right. For somebody's right. in a grouchy mood, he likes to call it out. How do you expect me to understand your altumal cant without pondering on it? I do not expect you to understand medical jargon. Not to know the odds, says Jack, between a halyard and a sheet. After all these years at sea, it passes human understanding. And Stephen's right back with his response. You're a reasonably civil, complacent creature on dry land, said Stephen. But the moment you're afloat, you become pragmatical and absolute. A bashore. Do this. Do that. Glup at the prawling strangles there. No longer a social being at all. Diana said nothing. She had a considerable experience, and she knew that if men were to be at all tolerable, they must be fed. <laughs> Amen. There we go. There we go. It is. It's so great to have Jack and Stephen back at each other. You know, Stephen, who's just been brilliant on land, is is now on sea again. Jack, who actually, you know, kind of turned it around on land there at the end to come together here, but now is definitely in command. And and we even had just a little inkling above it as they were as they were getting ready to to jump into the little boat. You know, Stephen's telling Jack, Jack, shouldn't we just wait a while and let the tide bring the little boat up to us? <laughs> As, as if the, the ship would stay in the same place, but the, but 
yeah, it's wonderful to see them back together and to see Diana's, you know, not only is she uh, uh, not a light woman, but she's got some great practical sense where men are concerned here. She does, but she, she's getting deflated a little bit here. We've already seen that her ego is a little bit beaten about the edges. She's gone from being the tall, upright, beautiful, look him in the eye person <laughs> to being the one who's got seasick. Yeah. And it's very sad, really. She's just kind of curled up in the bottom of the boat. It's got a cloth over her. She's shivering. She's green. She's throwing up. She's among the stinking bait pots. Oh, ah, dear me. We're going to have to raise her up somehow. Not quite sure what that's going to be. Yeah, well, Jack even changes course to give a little calmer water. And then lo and behold, here is this cutter from the U.S. Chesapeake racing through these boats, not messing with any of the boats, kind of heading straight for them. And we're thinking, oh, no, you know, the jig is up here, right? And right until the cutter comes past them and turns right up until that moment, they're thinking, oh, you know, we're, we're going to get taken here. But as Jack notices, it's probably just Captain Lawrence out exercising his borders. So we've got the grubby little scow with the bait pots tacking around the harbour to make a vaguely composed, vaguely comfortable sea state right. for Diana and her seasickness, being overtaken by this brum, straight line, martial display of, of practice aboard the cutter. And actually, if you look at the map, and by the way, you could go onto Tom Horn's site, onto cannonade.net, and you can see the pathway that Stephen and Jack and Diana took leaving Boston Harbour. They went quite a long way out. The islands yeah. are at the gateway to Boston Harbour, a good mile and a half, two miles offshore. And great news, having first of all encountered Captain Lawrence's cutter and the borders, who comes into view but HMS Shannon. And Shannon, you know, Shannon has snuck in once again to the harbor, taking a look at the Chesapeake. And it's a little bit of a scene, you know, reminiscent, takes us back a little bit. They're they're headed for her. They're going to make it. And then all of a sudden she's turning around. She's getting ready to head back up. (laughs) Jack... Yeah. And, 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 you know, arises, hails as he had rarely hailed before here. Um, they're just screaming away. It says, a moment of the most intense anxiety. And he saw the frigate back her foretopsail. The way came off her just enough to let the scow run alongside. The awkward boat gave her a shrewd thump amidships and from the deck above a thundering voice a familiar voice cried out mind the paintwork damn your eyes mind the paintwork fend off i have a mind to put a round shot through your bottom and then in a milder tone well jonathan have you any lobsters aboard paul pass him a line (laughs) so we're right back in the british navy and we've got one of the things that patrick o'brien delights in which is a momentary (laughs) Momentary mistaken identity. Yes. With the line firm in his hand and ease flooding through his heart, Jack could now be facetious. I must ask you to moderate your language, sir. We have a lady in the boat. Pray tell Captain Brooke that I should like a word with him and take your hands out of your pockets when you speak to me, Mr. Faulkner. Blank consternation. On the broad, honest, weather-beaten face above the dawn of wrath, shocked silence fore and aft. Then a huge grin and Faulkner cried, Bye! Dear me, tis tis Captain Aubrey. I beg your pardon, sir. Will you come aboard? Love this. <sighs> Just love this. <laughs> and Jack is received aboard. They pipe, they pipe the side. How quickly must they have got the side boys together? Right. Jack is received aboard like an officer. They bring up Stephen and Diana, a dripping dead rat, says O'Brien. <laughs> and they meet Philip Brooke, the Shannon's captain. And Jack turns to Stephen and says, I can say it now. We have escaped give you joy of your freedom brother whoa oh, great moment Woo. a great moment if only it was christmas it would be a triple well i know <laughs> i know why couldn't it be christmas again but we wouldn't have oh oh dare i say it a glorious first of june no no, no that would be a spoiler no 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 <laughs> well joy of your freedom brother i mean gosh ian it sounds like you know we're pretty much over here right We've had the plot. We've had all the intrigue on land. We've had the great escape. And now it's time to sort of roll credits here, right? End of the book. Well, it could be, except that some part of me remembers that perhaps the Shannon might have been a real vessel in a real situation. And perhaps the Chesapeake and Captain Lawrence might also have been. I think there's some actual real historical business to transact. So, Mike, 
Before we get to the very end, we should probably just say hello to a couple of listeners who have been engaging with us on our social media. Mike, people have been going to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash lubbers hole. And they've been talking to us on Twitter, right? At whole lubbers. They surely have. And we had a comment on our Facebook page from listener Charles Hotchkiss. So Charles, I bet you thought you weren't going to get a mention. Charles is used to hearing us sign off by saying with all my heart and wasn't sure where that first appeared in the canon and suggested an alternate ending for us. Let's give that a try and see how people like it. Mike, what do you say to joining me next time for a bit more Patrick O'Brien? I would like that of all things, Ian. Charles, that was just for you. Well, that's right. And for those of you who are wondering where these phrases first appear in the canon, they both appear in the Norton edition in the U.S. on page 14 of Master and Commander, book one. (laughs) So both phrases on page 14, right there. Chapter and verse.